Oh, good evening. My, my name is Jack, and I am an alcoholic. And uh, what a privilege and an honor it is to be here in Lincoln, Nebraska with you all tonight. And sitting up here and, and, and watching the countdown unfold and, and to know that there is a, there's such a balance here of people who are new to sobriety, not necessarily new to our program, but new to sobriety who are here tonight, and some people who have been here for a little while longer. And uh, isn't that what it's all about? I want to thank the committee uh, for inviting me, and uh, particularly uh, Rick A. For, for calling and asking me to come. Uh, it is a privilege to be here. I want to thank Neil for uh, calling me on the phone and keeping me up to date on what was going on and making sure that uh, I was going to come. And uh, I, uh, I tell you, this was not part of my plan uh, when I started. You know, our book says that um, our stories are to disclose in a general way what we used to be like. Uh, what happened and what we're like now. It's real hard to come here and and follow speakers that have already spoken, like Patty and and Billy. I mean, I could I could just as easily say uh, ditto and sit down, <clears throat> and and I'd be way ahead of the game. I need to tell you that from my understanding, there really isn't a lot that's original in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, there seems to be an oral history uh, that has passed one alcoholic to another, and it just seems to move all around the country. And, uh, you know, nothing that I say tonight is going to be particularly original. More than likely, uh, I stole it from somebody else. Um, you're going to hear me say at least one thing that I stole from Billy. Uh, so I just want to warn you up front. So if you say, oh, I've heard that before. Well, I hope so. Uh, somebody else does it because it didn't start with me. Um, I didn't plan on being an alcoholic. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. I know what an alcoholic is. Um, I had no intentions of being an alcoholic. Um, I hated uh, what alcoholism did to our family. I hated what it did to our father. And... Uh, I, I was—I mean, I was stunned when I opened the big book and read in it that some of us, at a very early age, had closed the door upon God, and that was my experience. Uh, my dad was drinking. I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed to God that my dad would stop drinking. And uh, on one occasion, uh, he came to me and wanted me to do something or go somewhere, and I honestly don't recall what he wanted me to do. But I do recall that he said if I did for him what he wanted me to do, that he would do for me anything I asked of him. So I asked him to quit drinking. He said, fair enough, I'll quit. It's about time I quit. My sister and my mom were not at home at the time, and they came home later that evening. I met them at the door, and announced to them that our problems were solved. <clears throat> Dad has promised to stop drinking. 
Um, our financial affairs will be put back in balance, I know. Our, our family home and our business will not be threatened. Uh, and, and all will be right here in our family. And uh, I did that. I made it happen by getting my dad to promise. And, of course, the next day he got drunk. And uh, my sister tells me that that's the day I changed. I, I really don't recall necessarily changing, but I do recall that I became a very problematic child. And uh, I know that as far as I was concerned, I closed the door on God. Um, I, 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 I've always kind of believed that there was a God, but I was... I was I was sure that whatever that force was called God that I was not either I was not worthy my prayers were not worthy uh, God had played a cruel hoax or joke on me just to see how I'd react and I show you how I'm going to react I just shut the door on you I know that if I'm ever going to make it in this world I'm going to have to do it on my own. I'm not, I'm not going to have anybody else's help. It's going to have to be me. There was a, a singer in the late 50s by the name of Fats Domino who did a lot of rock and roll songs, but one that he did that I remember because it resonated with me was entitled, I'm going to be a wheel someday. I'm going to be somebody. And that was kind of like my theme song. I, I'm going to be somebody. I don't care about my father's alcoholism. I'm going to show you. Uh, I'll show you that I'm going to be somebody. I had no idea until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous the role that alcohol played in my life, but my whole life has been driven by alcohol. And I didn't know it. I had no idea. Give you a, give you a couple of snapshots. I'd been uh, working uh, one summer going to the community college and uh, some guys I knew were living and working down at the ocean. Maryland, I'm from Hagerstown, Maryland, and we have a little sliver of Atlantic seaboard where we have a resort community, and a lot of folks go down there, and I had some friends down there who were working, and uh, I went down for the month of August and lived as a bum. Lived in the basement of hotels and ate leftover restaurant food and drank their beer. And observe the uh, the scene. And I'm a keen observer. And I noticed in Ocean City, Maryland, that if you were a beach boy, or a lifeguard, or a waiter, or a bartender, or a clerk in a store, and you drank, and you acted out, they'd lock you up. But I noticed that the policemen didn't get arrested when they acted out drunk. So, for the next three summers, I worked in Ocean City as a policeman. <laughs> My first career decision, driven by alcohol. They paid me a dollar an hour for 56 hours a week, and I wondered why I didn't have any money. But during those three summers, I drank every day. I drank to excess every day. And I did not buy a single drink the entire time I was there. I had a keen instinct for underage drinkers. <laughs> I, I could sense 
when I was in the vicinity of or the neighborhood of minors in the possession of alcohol. And I was like a bird dog on a quail or a pheasant. <laughs> and we worked out a deal with my lieutenant and my sergeant that I would turn all the whiskey over to them and I could keep the beer. And so it began. I had the finest collection of coolers in all of Ocean City. <laughs> because you couldn't just give me your beer. You had to give it all to me, <laughs> including the tuna sandwiches, if you had any. So they gave me a squad car for my second and third year. My activities picked up. One morning, while patrolling the beach highway, at 3 a.m., I saw a convertible automobile driven by a white male with three or four, I can't remember now, attractive women in the car, operating erratically, changing lanes, weaving. Oh, well, I stopped them. I knew this was not a minor in possession. But I stopped them, and I approached the vehicle, license, registration. The driver said, do you know who I am? I said, no, I don't know who you are. He introduced himself as the state's attorney for the community or the county in which Ocean City was located. Now, keep in mind, I don't know anything about state's attorneys. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know a whole lot about what he's talking about. I wrote him the ticket for DWI. Now, I don't know, in uh, uh, some places they're called district attorneys, some places they're called the Commonwealth's attorneys, some places they're the chief prosecutor, but they're the people who head up the criminal justice system. And I'd given this guy a ticket, and uh, it really, at the moment, didn't mean anything to me. But when I got off at 8 o'clock in the morning, it became more meaningful. Uh, I... Uh, I pulled into the uh, lot where we parked our squad cars and was met by the chief of police, who had not spoken to me yet that summer. <laughs> and he invited me to come to his office and to bring my citation book with me. And when I got to the chief's office, there seated on the couch was the guy I'd given the ticket to at 3 o'clock in the morning, the state's attorney for Worcester County. He said, give me that ticket book, said the chief. I handed it to him. He handed it to the state's attorney. state's attorney wrote across the bottom of it, Nall Pross. That means case dismissed. It was at that moment I decided I wanted to become a lawyer. <laughs> and, if possible, I'd like to be one of them state's attorneys. Because I still wasn't real clear on what it was all about, but writing case dismissed across the bottom of your own ticket, that's very important if you drank like I drank. So, I went to law school. I got out of law school. I went to Hagerstown, Maryland, where I live today. I was born and raised there. Went back to Hagerstown, Maryland. Went over to the state's attorney's office. I said, here I am. I'm a freshly minted lawyer. I'm ready to start prosecuting. They said, we don't have time to, to teach you this stuff. You know, there's, there's no opportunity here for you. Well, I think we all know in this room that the power of a resentment can do a lot. <laughs> and I became very resentful at the state's attorney 
for refusing this excellent opportunity to hire someone as talented as me, <laughs> albeit inexperienced. So I found a guy in our community who did want to be state's attorney. I ran his campaign for state's attorney. He was elected state's attorney, and he made me his deputy state's attorney. <laughs> now, when I got to be deputy state's attorney, the first thing I noticed in our office that we had a huge deficiency. We had no badges to identify ourselves as state's attorneys. So I set about, the very first thing I did was to design a badge for our office. <clears throat> I have it to this day. It's a very nice-looking badge. It has my name on it. And I had a badge case that you put it in. And it goes right next to your driver's license. So if by chance you ever have to exhibit your driver's license... <laughs> Oh, that officer? Deputy State's Attorney, Washington County. Thank you very much. I'll, thank you, sir. Sorry to bother you. Thank you very much. Now, I mean, if you drank like I drank, that was very handy and very important. <clears throat> well, a year or two into that stint as Deputy State's Attorney, my boss, the State's Attorney, had an opportunity to become a judge. Uh, the governor was going to appoint him. Our state senator got involved in it, screwed the whole thing up, politics. You know how that can be sometimes. <clears throat> and um, my guy didn't get appointed. Now, if my guy had got appointed, I'd have got to be the state's attorney. So, once again, I got a resentment. <laughs> the focus of my resentment was the state senator who had messed this thing up. So I went out and got a bunch of young guys who drank like me, who didn't know any better, and we ran me for state senator. <laughs> Little did I know that our state senator was going to run off with the secretary of the Appropriations Committee and abandon his family and go to Florida. But he did, and I got elected state senator. <laughs> now, when you are a state senator, they give you a license plate, and it says state senator. That's better than a badge. Because <laughs> that way, they know who they're dealing with before they even turn the lights on. And at least back then, I don't know about now, but back then, you really didn't want to mess around with somebody who set your salary. So, being a state senator for me was much better than having a 10 badge and being a deputy state's attorney. Now, I don't know. I mean, I know Lincoln is the capital of Nebraska, and I know the legislative session ended yesterday. Now, you probably have here in Lincoln the same thing we have in Annapolis, Maryland, and that is people who are willing to buy alcohol for members of the legislature at any time of the day or night during any day of the week. They're called lobbyists. Now, I would like to tell you about my legislative career, but I don't remember very much of it. <laughs> I did serve three years out of a four-year term, but then that guy who had gotten appointed judge back six years ago didn't like the job and he resigned. And I tried to get my buddy, the state's attorney, appointed judge. And the governor, who was still smarting over the political brouhaha, 
said he wouldn't appoint my buddy, but if I wanted to be judge, he'd appoint me. <laughs> well, in Maryland, circuit court judges are appointed, and they run for a term of 15 years. And it doesn't come around very often, and there are only two judges in my county, and he appointed me to be one of them. Now, being a general jurisdiction circuit court judge in a two-judge county is pretty close to being God. <laughs> the only thing closer to being God is being a single judge in a single-judge county. <laughs> now, they don't give you a license plate that says judge, and they don't give you a badge. But I dare say that there is not a law enforcement officer in a four-state area that doesn't know who you are. And if you drank like I drank, it was very helpful to be a circuit court judge. That's why I stand before you here tonight, and I can tell you that I've never lost a job. It's because of my drinking. I've never had a DWI because of my drinking. I've never, I've never been to jail. I don't even have a good tattoo. You may wonder why I'm here. But I think you understand how the progression through those jobs insulated me from some of those experiences. I certainly got stopped a lot, but I never got arrested. Now, as a judge, I certainly... Uh, wanted to participate in all of the activities of our community and our bar association. And one night we had a, had a program on uh, drunk driving. And uh, they were going to have the prosecutor put on how they prosecute drunk driving cases, going to have the public defender put on how we defend them. And they needed somebody to be a volunteer for the breathalyzer. I'm a neutral person. I'm objective. What better choice? And so they set up kind of like this. Breathalyzer over there. Brought out a tray with six cans of beer in it. Where's the rest of it, I said. <laughs> this is a uh, this program I think is two, two and a half hours. <laughs> Oh, we got plenty back behind. I said, well, ice it up and bring it out because we're going to need it. And we started, I started drinking and they started talking. And, uh, you know, and every 15 minutes I blow in the breathalyzer. You know, 0.05, 0.11, 0.18, 2.3, 3.1. You know, I think... I think 3738 was the highest I got. And then it was my turn to put on my part of the program. <laughs> Which I am told was quite good under the circumstances, but I really have no memory of that part of it. <clears throat> I do remember that after the program was over, I asked the guy who had invited me there, I said, who's going to take me home? Because Sergeant Long here just had me blow a 3.8 in his breathalyzer. I don't think I can go out and get in my car. 
geez, Judge, we didn't plan on that. My God. So I'll tell you what, I'll go in the bar. You come, let me know when the sergeant's gone. So I went in the bar, had a couple drinks. Sergeant's gone. Went downtown, had a couple drinks. Went to another bar, had a couple drinks. Went home. It's a night of social drinking. Just a, just a regular old night. <coughs> Excuse me. So, my life revolved around alcohol. And uh, here I am populating the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous with every person who comes through my court with a DWI. Of course, I, you, you've heard this. I have seen this happen with my very own eyes. I would say you're going to have to do 90 meetings in 90 days or 30 days in jail. Well, what's your choice? Well, I'm thinking. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing the way we do this, right? I heard Sandy Beach talk about this one time, and I believe this to be true. That for those people who I made that proposition to and said, 90 meetings and 90 days, 30 days in jail. They had seen people who went to jail, and they came back to the bar. But a lot of those folks that went to those AA meetings disappeared. <laughs> they never saw them again. And they didn't know what happened to them. And I'd just as soon have the 30 days than to be disappeared. So, I'm full of egotism. I'm full of anger and resentment. I am, um, I'm a raging alcoholic is what I am. And I'm a circuit court judge in a two-judge county. On uh, April the 7th of 1982, another lawyer, a lawyer and I had made arrangements to go out to dinner, a uh, social occasion. I mean, the object of the occasion was to drink copious quantities of alcohol, but the stated purpose was to have some seafood. And we went out, and we drank, and we drank, and we drank. And we drank and we drank. If if I had known that that was going to be the last night that I was going to drink, my last drink would not have been Tia Maria. But I'm embarrassed to say that my last drink was Tia Maria. There was something wrong with that bottle of Tia Maria because it made me ill. I think I had the touch of the flu, is what it was. <laughs> and the next day, a Thursday, I did go to work. I mean, we all we go to work, right? I mean, we go to work. I mean, we, we may be dying, but we go to work. And I went to work, bad case of flu, but I tried a case. Case was, I made a ruling, went home, bad flu. Next day was Good Friday, so I had the day off. Home, bad flu. But you know, when you got the flu, you know, what goes with the flu? Loose bowels frequently go with the flu. And certainly an upset stomach is not unheard of with the flu. And I had both of these things. And, and that condition really does hone your decision-making abilities and capacities. I didn't know whether to kneel or to sit. <laughs> or to sit or to kneel. 
And on at least one occasion, I made the wrong choice. <laughs> but enough about that. You can talk to my wife about that on another occasion. <clears throat> I had a flu all the way through Easter weekend. Monday they put me in the hospital. I was uh, dehydrated. Bad flu. Uh, later that night, my stomach became distended, and, and they, they, had to, they had to do uh, uh, abdominal surgery on me. And when they opened me up, I was full of gangrene, uh, peritonitis, and uh, really did not locate what caused it. But, it, you know, it was there, and they were cleaning that up, and then my kidneys quit, and my liver was enlarged, my pancreas was digesting itself, and my respiratory system quit. So they really stopped looking for the cause of the peritonitis and began trying to just save my life. And uh, 20 years ago tonight, I was uh, just, uh, I guess, just ending my first week in intensive care. And uh, when your kidneys shut down like that, at least in my situation, they did something called peritoneal dialysis in which they pour fluid into your abdomen for two hours and it gets more painful and more painful and more painful and then excruciatingly painful. They leave it in there for two hours, excruciatingly painful. Then they drain it out. And you go, oh, I feel, it feels better. And then they start again. And <clears throat> they did that for several weeks in Hagerstown. And uh, I got sent to, eventually, after three weeks in intensive care, I was sent to Johns Hopkins. And I'd gone into the hospital, a 39-year-old judge in good health, youngest judge in the state of Maryland, and I was going to die in that hospital. And that was a bad public relations problem for them. And it was in a newspaper every day. Judge in a hospital, judge's condition worsens, judge serious condition, judge transferred to Johns Hopkins. They sent me to Johns Hopkins to die. They told my wife that. They didn't tell me that. I'm glad they didn't tell me that. Everybody I knew went to Johns Hopkins, got well. And I thought, this is good, because I'm going to Johns Hopkins, I'll get well. I went to Johns Hopkins. They did all kinds of stuff down there for two weeks. And on May the 13th, the doctors came to my room. And uh, before they could say anything, I said, look, guys, I said, I can't take it anymore. I said, I just... You've done everything but hang me by my thumbs, and I just like a day of rest. Tomorrow is my birthday. Please, just tomorrow, let me alone. The head of the kidney department, a world-famous guy, and the head of the gastroenterology department, another world-famous guy, both said, that's why we came. We don't know what's wrong with you, and we don't know what to do to fix you. So we're going to leave you alone tomorrow. Two weeks later... I walked out of that hospital. They don't know what I had. They presented me to the internal medicine department. They couldn't get a majority vote on it. Um, I'm getting ready to check out of the hospital. They're telling me I don't have any dietary restrictions. I can pretty much eat what I want, do what I want to do. Um, but there is one thing. What's that? Do you drink? <laughs> what kind of question is that? I've been in the hospital for seven weeks for crying out loud. No, no, no. We don't mean if you had anything to drink in the last seven weeks. We mean, do you drink? 
I'm a lawyer. It's a professional obligation for lawyers to drink. I'm a judge. I have to be elected to this office. I drink with my constituents. I drink with lawyers. Yes, I drink. Certainly I drink. Well, how much? Not much. (laughs) Why? Well, because, you know, your kidney functions back, and alcohol really does big damage to the kidneys. Your liver function is returning, and, you know, alcohol really does a number on the liver. Your pancreas has stopped digesting itself, and alcohol is bad for the pancreas. And we, we just like you to not drink. Well, I said, well, for how long? <laughs> they said, a year. I said, a year. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, I haven't had a drink since April the 7th. Okay. And they said, no, 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 no. We don't mean April the 7th. This is Memorial Day weekend. We want you to use June 1st as the date that you don't drink. Now, I know in this room tonight there are some people who recognize the injustice of what was being asked of me. (laughs) There was no credit for the seven weeks that I had not been drinking. None. That's unfair. I think it's probably unethical. And so we began to argue, me and these two world-famous doctors, which causes me to wonder just who was the most mentally unbalanced in that group, because they were seriously engaging me. Well, we compromised. They saw it my way. And I said I would not drink until next April the 7th. And then they said, if I wanted to drink, go ahead and drink. But if I thought that any of the pain and suffering that I just experienced had anything to do with alcohol, why don't you not drink till June 1st? Sounded fair to me. And thus began the craziest, most insane period of my life. Not drinking. And just going nuts. I need to tell you that uh, when I was drinking... My wife and I separated three times. When I stopped drinking, my wife and I separated three times. I think that's a pretty clear indication that alcohol had nothing to do with it. But I think alcoholism had a lot to do with it. Now, if I don't screw this thing up, Uh, She and I will be married 36 years come August. And she ought to get a chip for that. She'll get a copy of this tape. And that applause is for her, not for me. I did everything that I could possibly do to destroy that marriage. Even her pastor told her to get a divorce. She is a person of faith. She has a strong faith base. And she walks by faith and not by sight. And that's the only reason that she and I are together today. Because she had the faith. Me, I had the alcoholism. And I wasn't drinking. You know, what was I like? 
Well, I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief, a user, abuser of people, places, and things, and I was pretty pissed off about not drinking. <laughs> you know, I mean, up until the time I stopped drinking, I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief, a user, abuser of people, places, and things, and I allowed myself to be overserved from time to time. But when you take the alcohol away, I was still a liar, a cheat, and a thief, a user, abuser of people, places, and things. It was insane. The things that went on in our family, things that went on in my life, repeating behaviors. I mean, I tell you, they were, they were separated six times total, three times before I stopped drinking, three times afterwards. <clears throat> of course, I had a girlfriend, obviously. I had a primary girlfriend. I had a backup girlfriend in case something went wrong. <laughs> I had a special girlfriend for those special occasions. If you look at a big book, it says we're driven by a hundred forms of delusional thinking. I just told you one of my delusional thoughts, that I could actually have a girlfriend, a backup girlfriend, and a special girlfriend on the side, and make all that work and be married. It's insane. It's crazy. Now, some of the insanity, some of the delusions are not quite so obvious. I mean, personally, I didn't think that one was very obvious myself because I didn't see it until I was in the four-step inventory and found out that I have relationship problems. <laughs> As uh, June 1, well, April 7th rolled around, I said, well, I won't drink until June 1. June 1 rolled around. <coughs> I didn't drink. And I continue to not drink. You know, that's like going on the wagon, not drinking. Now, I've come to find out, or I know today, that the pain of living becomes so great that what we do is, without, if we don't change, we either go back to drinking or we drive into a bridge abutment where we shoot ourselves or hang ourselves or do something equally insane. Or we go back to drinking. Slow suicide. I knew I couldn't drink. So suicide seemed to me to be the option. Permanent solution to a temporary problem. Crazy. Just crazy. I had two friends, Bob and Ken, who are in Alcoholics Anonymous. Bob ran a treatment program at the hospital. Uh, Ken was in the prosecutor's office in our community. I had hired him when he got out of law school. He and I did a lot of drinking together. He's got 23 years sober in AA tonight, or, to, you know, now. And then he had a couple years. <clears throat> I think Bob suggested to me that I might want to learn about my father's disease. And he gave me a big book to read. Pretty clever, that Bob. <laughs> if he had said something about my alcoholism, I mean, I think it's pretty clear I'm not an alcoholic. I haven't had anything to drink for years. Well, I read the big book, and much, you know, as I expected, my father was in there. <laughs> Certainly wasn't expecting for me to be in there, <clears throat> but uh, indeed I was. And they came to my chambers every Friday at noon and brought their big books. Chambers are what judges call their offices. Now, they pay us extra money for chambers. So they would come, and we would read. And I would explain to them 
how it was impossible for me to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they would encourage me, and I would argue, and they would encourage me, and I would argue. Okay, I'm powerless over alcohol. I'll, I'll own up to that. But I really think that I need to take care of my job here. I need to be responsible for my relationships. I mean, after all, I have quite a few of them. And <clears throat> and the money situation, I should be. I think I'm pretty much in charge of that too. Of course, I was spending a lot of money I didn't have to buy things I didn't want or need to impress a lot of people I didn't like. I heard that in Alcoholics Anonymous. The first time I heard it, I said, "Yes." That's me. I never recognized that behavior before until I heard it here. But that was me. So, long story short, I started going to some meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in Frederick up in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. I'd go late. I'd leave early. You know, very nice, the meetings. Nice people. They, they need this program. It's, it's, it's pretty clear. But, you know... I mean, AA is a not drinking deal, right? And I'm not drinking. So what's the problem? No problem. I'm running my life. I'm in charge of everything. And I'm not drinking. And right before Christmas, 1989, I went to have lunch with my sponsors. Right? Christmas, have lunch with your sponsor. That's what you do. Have lunch with your sponsors. Again, they encouraged me to go to meetings in Hagerstown. Again, I told them why I couldn't. <clears throat> I was separated from my wife at the time, surprisingly enough. Um, had an apartment. Uh, went back to my apartment. I lived on the second floor of this really nice building and they had a gang mailbox down on the first floor and I went up to my apartment and there was a package propped against my door and it was a, a Hickory Farms uh package. You know, they, they, they come at Christmas all the time, like a sausage or a cheese log. And the mailman had walked it up the steps and put it against the door. Isn't that great, living in a small town? I mean, if he'd have put it downstairs at the gang mailbox, somebody come along and steal the judge's sausage. So, <laughs> so it was very, I mean, so I take the box and I go into my apartment. I'm in a kind of a, an inner room where there's a, a, um, a, uh, answering machine and I'm, taking the messages off uh, the answer machine. I'm trying to figure out how to get this damn box open. And I'm, it's all, you know, it's taped. And finally I find a place where it's taped. And I zip that tape with a with one of my car keys. And I open that lid up and boom! And I, um, I got blown back against the wall. And... Um, very first thought that came to my mind was if Radio Shack is having this problem with all their answering machines, <laughs> they've got a hell of a products liability problem. <laughs> but then I smelled the gunpowder gun and I knew that the package was a bomb. And the week before, a judge in Birmingham, Alabama had received a bomb and had been killed and just a few days before, a lawyer in Savannah, Georgia, had received a package at his office and it had been a bomb and he'd been killed. And that's what this was. It was a package bomb. There was a fire and I tried to put it out and I couldn't. I went out into the hallway and hooked the mailbox 
or the fire alarm box. A neighbor came and I told him there's a fire. He said, bring a fire extinguisher. I went back into my apartment, back to the tel- area where the telephone was, called 911, and when I pushed the buttons for 911, I saw that part of my right hand had been blown away. And they said, police, fire, or rescue. And I said, I'd like to have one of each. <laughs> and they said they'd send them. And I hung up the phone. And it felt like somebody was pulling my pants off my hips. And uh, I looked down and I was standing in a puddle of blood. And it was just going like that. And my neighbor came and asked if there was something else he could do. And I asked him to get me a towel. And I opened my trousers. And I did not have the courage to look. I just put the towel where I thought maybe the wound might be. I braced my back against the wall and I slid down on the floor. And it was clear to me that I was dying. And uh, I could feel life flowing out of me. And I didn't know what to do. Did not know what to do. Scared. Terribly frightened. The only thing that I had learned in my limited time in Alcoholics Anonymous was the serenity prayer. And so I prayed the serenity prayer. And 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 the fourth, fifth, or sixth time through that prayer, it was answered. And God came. I was granted a peace and a serenity that assured me that if I were to die on that floor that day and never see my wife or our three children again, it was going to be okay. Not that I was going to live, not that I was going to die, but just that it was going to be okay. The police fire and rescue did come, and when they came, they came uh, asking a lot of questions. Both of my eardrums had been blown out, so I did not hear very much of what they were saying. I stopped praying that prayer in order to speak with them. Upon stopping that prayer, a wave of fear swept right across me. And I told them, you guys do whatever you have to do, and I'm going back to doing what I was doing. As soon as I started the prayer, the serenity returned. And I continued to pray that prayer until they, you know, put me on a backboard and carried me down some steps and stuffed me in an ambulance and took me to a trauma center and took me up to surgery and they removed a piece of shrapnel that had entered my groin and it was either resting against or in very close proximity to my femoral artery. I don't know how shrapnel knows how to stop passing through flesh. But I know that if it had nicked that artery, you'd have a different speaker here tonight. Two days later, I was in my hospital room and my sponsor, Bob, came. He was seated at the foot of the bed. I'm feeling pretty sorry for myself at this time. Uh, It's a day before Christmas now and I have this hand injury, which if you've ever had a hand or a finger injury, you know it's very painful. And this one was very painful. And Bob was sitting there smiling. And I said, Bob, what's so amusing? And he said, I just think it must be wonderful. I said, Bob, uh, I'm not getting your drift here. (laughs) 
You never know what sponsors are thinking. <laughs> Explain this to me, Bob. He said, well, he said, Jack, I just think it must be wonderful to know that you can't be harmed. I said, Bob, I'm, <clears throat> I'm still not following you. <laughs> he said, well, Jack, he said, as I understand it, there are four pipe bombs in that package. One pipe bomb would have been more than enough. Certainly two was redundant. And to put four in it was really overdoing it. And I would say that man has done everything that he could do to kill you. And that for reasons known only to God, you are here. And you cannot be harmed until you finish God's work here on earth that he has for you to do. It's good to have a sponsor because sometimes they do have a different perspective. That was not my perspective. <laughs> At the time, Bob mentioned that. However, the FBI came and said, where did they take the corpse? The ATF came and said, where did they take, what morgue did he go to? The postal inspectors came and said, what funeral home are we going to, where are we going to find him? Because the devastation was complete. Pictures on the wall behind me, riddle with shrapnel. All the doors of all the, in, into the area where I was, all of them had holes blown through them. Ceiling and ductwork, all blown out. Hair on my head, burned. Hair on my face, burned. Any scars or marks on me? Uh-uh. Little problem with my hand. Piece of shrapnel in my groin. I don't recommend getting blown up as a learning experience. <laughs> but I think you need to know that on December 22nd, 1989, I had plans. I had plans for that Friday, that night. I had plans for the next day. I had plans for Christmas Eve. I had plans for Christmas. I had plans all the way into New Year's of 1990. I had plans way into 1990. And getting blown up wasn't part of my plan. Well, it got my attention. I'm not in charge of my life. Me and all my big plans about managing my life, going to run my relationships, going to take care of my money. I got nothing. And the only reason I have this job is because God gave me the job. The only reason I have any relationships is God has permitted that to happen in my life. Money, God's got all the money in the world. He'll let me have what I need. won't let me have what I want. So I got busy in the steps. You know, I got busy in the steps. I, I tell you, it's just amazing what's in this big book. You know, if you ever want to hide something from an alcoholic, put it in their big book. I read this thing and read it and read it and read it. I never saw this stuff. We were having trouble with personal relationships. I don't know if anybody identifies with this or not. <laughs> Couldn't control our emotional natures. A prey to misery. A prey to depression. Couldn't make a living. Well, I made a living. I just spent more than I made. Feeling of uselessness. Full of fear. Unhappy couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. That check mark goes next to every one of them for me. I can't tell you how many times I'd had this big book read to me or I'd read it myself before I saw that. 
book calls them bedevilments. Story of my life. It's always been something wrong with me. Didn't fit in. Didn't belong. Felt different. Ashamed of my father. Ashamed of my own behavior. I felt frequently felt as if I had been... Well, you know how I said my birthday is on May the 14th, and it's like God had this stadium, you know, all the little babies going to be born on the 14th of May, go to the stadium. Okay, little babies, get in here. God's going to tell you everything you need to know about living life. And okay, now God's coming up to the podium, and He's getting ready to speak, and i got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And I go out and go to the bathroom. I hurry back. I get back in my seat. And God's saying, and now you know everything you need to know about living a successful life. And everybody says, man, that was cool. Did you hear that? That was cool. Everything we need to know. Yeah, man, I heard him. He's Yeah, great. I didn't hear anything. All my life I thought, I'd look at you and I thought you knew what was going on and I didn't know. I don't know how you found out what was going on. Nobody told me, and I sure wasn't going to ask you what was going on, because if I asked you, then you'd know I didn't know. And here I am in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't know. My ego required me to point out to my sponsors that I have graduated from community college, University of Maryland at College Park, University of Maryland Law School with honors, and my sponsor pointed out that there are degrees on rectal thermometers and you know what we do with them. <laughs> Too damn smart for this program. That was my problem. I want to discuss everything. I got into that big book. That one page says, Logic. We love logic. I said, Down. Now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, we're going to think this thing through. But the bridge of reason doesn't touch down on the shore of faith. I cannot think my way into right living. I can only live my way into right thinking. I did not know that. I had been to psychiatrists. I had been to psychologists. I paid them $100 an hour for 50 minutes. You know, sure, no problem. Did I ever tell them the truth or anything close to it? Hell no. I mean, if they were any good, their job was to get it out of me. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not owning up to nothing. Our book talks about driven by a hundred forms of self-delusion. Don't get sucked into this stuff about denial. Denial is not part of the program of recovery of Alcoholics Anonymous. Got Neil's over here. He's got his money clip full of money here on the table. He turns his back to talk to Dick. I grab his money clip. I put it in my pocket. Neil comes back. He says, Jack, you got my money clip. I say, no. That's denial. I know the truth. And I'm denying it. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. But I know the truth. Delusion is when I got Neil's money clip right here in my pocket and he says, do you have my money clip? And I say, no. And I believe it. I tell myself a lie. I believe the lie to be true. I take action on the lie. I delude myself. There's something wrong with the way I think. Simply how I think. S-H-I-T. Simply how I think. The book says the problem for the alcoholic centers in the mind. 
I don't know what you guys do in your minds. The only thing I do in mine is think. Think, 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 think. Think, 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 think. And it's delusional. It's crazy. The nice thing about having a sponsor is I can call up Ken or Bob and I can say, here's what I'm planning to do. And as the words exit my mouth and get out into the air, frequently I can hear how crazy this is. Now sometimes it does require Ken to say, you're what? Why, uh, maybe you have a different suggestion, Ken. Yeah, did you ever consider doing this? Well, no, I never really did. Sponsors have a way of having a different perception on life. There's something wrong with the way I think. Simply how I think is my problem. And it's as much a problem for me today as it was before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I have yet to find in the big book where it says you can now think on your own. What I find in the big book, it says, sanity has returned. Why has sanity returned? Because I have made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, and I've taken action on that. And this morning, when I woke up, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about, and I was thinking of me when I woke up this morning. I know you'd like me to say I was thinking of you. I was not thinking of you. I was thinking of me. What about me? How about me? And I made a decision this morning. I invited God into my life early this morning. I said the third step prayer this morning. I said the seventh step prayer this morning. They have a nice way of melding together. Did you ever notice the third step prayer? For those of you who are new, you might not have noticed this. I know those guys with double digit sobriety have noticed this. Third step prayer has got no amen. Whoever heard of a prayer with no amen? Ah, seven-step prayer's got an amen. Let's put three and seven together. We got a completed prayer. How about that? Man, these guys were slick, wrote this book. <clears throat> I heard a story just the other day, which I thought said a lot to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. This missionary was in Africa, and he hadn't been there very long. and He was traveling to a village, and a lot of snakes and stuff, and he's very concerned about his safety. He didn't have any weapons with him or anything, and he got to a curve, and his horse balked, and he got off the horse and looked around the corner, and there in the middle of the road, all coiled up, a huge snake basking in the sun, and the snake had his head under a little rock. And the guy had come too far to go back, and yet the road was too narrow for him to go forward without encountering the snake. So he decided to get a great big rock and sneak up on the snake and throw the big rock down on the little rock and crush the snake's head. So that's what he did. And he threw the big rock down onto the little rock and the snake didn't move. Turns out, somebody had come before him and had killed the snake with a little rock. 
Somebody has come before me in Alcoholics Anonymous and has cleared the path for me. The path is broad, it's clear, it's well-defined, it's easily marked, it's safe. It works for alcoholics. Somebody killed the snake a long time ago for me, and I didn't know it. I didn't know the path had been cleared. I didn't know that all I had to do was suspend what goes on in my mind, my crazy thinking. I'm not going to do these steps. I'm different from you. I'm sure as hell not going to tell you all that swarmy stuff that I did. I'm not going to bring up that little sheep. She looked like she was of age. She certainly seemed to enjoy it at the time. I'm not talking about that stuff with anybody. And the way to avoid that is don't do a four-step inventory. I'm very smart. I figured that out all on my own. So, but my life is miserable, so I better do something. So I better do what they say to do. So I get my big book out. Hey, listen, resentments, have I got them? I could tell you the names of every single one of them sons of bitches and what they did to me. No problem. Zip, 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 write that stuff down. Zip, zip, zip. Oh, what, what is it affecting me? Well, I never really thought about that too much, but certainly, yes, okay, I'll do that part. And I got that paper, and I went to see my sponsor, Bob, and I said, here it is, Bob, here's my inventory. And he said, where's the fourth column? Hey, there ain't no fourth column, folks. I looked in my book. There are three columns in there. And Bob and I had an argument. And I told Bob, I said, you go get that big book. So he went and got the big book. And I should have known he seemed to be too anxious to show it to me. (laughs) Just too darn anxious. I should have known I was up against something, but I didn't know. And if you don't know, you don't know. And that's just the way it is. You don't know. I never resolutely looked, as Billy said earlier today, for my own mistakes. I never really looked to see where I'd been selfish or dishonest or self-seeking or frightened. And that's where recovery began for me. You know, I love this book. I love AA. Right on the very front, I got this fourth edition here. It says the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Right on the very first page, the greatest promise, the greatest hope for people like me who suffer from a chronic, progressive, incurable disease. I can recover from this. Not be cured of it, but I can recover from it. I wish I could tell you what happened to all those voices that used to be in my head. They just left. I don't know. Most of my life have been hand-to-hand combat every day of my life. Resentment, anger, fear, remorse, despondency, despair, frustration. I don't know where they went. They just left. I know today that we suffer from a spiritual malady. I had tried to use physical tools on it. doesn't work. The book says... The solution to my problem is a vital spiritual experience. I don't know anything about a spiritual experience when I get to AA. The book says I can continue to live my life the way I've been living it, suffering the pain of daily living as best I can, withstanding it the best I can, or I can learn to live by spiritual principles. Well, listen, I'm a Monty Hall kind of guy. I want to know about door number three. Surely we can negotiate this. I'm a lawyer. Everything's negotiable. Not this. There is a great truth in our book. 
And the truth is, I can either recover by learning to live by spiritual principles, or I can die a horrible alcoholic life. Maybe drinking, maybe not drinking, but die a horrible alcoholic life nonetheless. Alcoholic death nonetheless. That's the truth. The problem with the truth is, it is the truth. And we might not like the truth. We might even get up here tonight and get really get real uppity and take a vote against it. I mean, we could be unanimous in our vote. It ain't going to make a damn bit of difference because it's the truth. Spiritual laws operate whether I know about them or not. You guys up there in the balcony, let's all get up in the front row. Let's all will ourselves to go up and step out into the air. You folks down here on the first level, step back just a little bit. <laughs> because somebody's going to splat right on these desks right down here in just a second. Okay, let's go get ourselves an aborigine. Doesn't know anything about gravity. We'll put that guy up there. Surely he can step out into space and not fall. No, he'll step out into space and he will fall because gravity operates whether you know about it or not. Ignorance of physical laws will not keep them from operating. Ignorance of spiritual laws will not keep them from operating. All my life, I went driving through spiritual stop signs, causing incredible pain and suffering to myself and others, and I didn't know what was going on. I just didn't know. My sponsors knew. They knew. And they knew that I didn't know. They never let on to me that they knew. They just allowed me to go ahead and not know. Had I known that they knew that I didn't know and that they knew what I didn't know and they didn't tell me what I didn't know, if I'd have known that, I'd have been really angry at them. (laughs) But they kept encouraging me to take action on these steps. And I took action on these steps. And one day I knew. It says in the big book, at step 10, we have entered the realm of the Spirit. And my function is to grow in effectiveness and to grow in understanding. What a wonderful life I've been given in Alcoholics Anonymous. A year after I got blown up, my wife and I reconciled. Our children have been restored to me. Our relationship is better today than it's ever been in our entire life. I came to Lincoln, Nebraska in the fall of 1995 to speak to the Nebraska Bar Association. I had been asked to go to New York two days after I was in Lincoln to meet with the President of the Republic of Palau to see whether or not they wanted to hire me to be the Attorney General of this country. Seated at lunch with the Grand Poobahs of the Nebraska Bar Association at the Cornhusker Hotel, my host asked the dean of the law school, don't we have somebody from the Nebraska Law School faculty out in Palau? The law school dean said, yes, we do. Peter Huffman is on the Supreme Court of Palau. Why do you ask? My host said, Jack is going to New York on Sunday to meet with the president of Palau to see if he's going to be their attorney general. The dean of the law school said, Peter Huffman is at the law school this afternoon. Let's see if we can get him on the phone. What do you think the odds are of a justice from the Supreme Court of Palau being in Lincoln, Nebraska on the only day 
in my entire life up until now that I was in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pretty slim. Well, I became the Attorney General of the Republic of Palau. My own country. (laughs) Imagine that. How does an alcoholic judge from Western Maryland become the Attorney General of a country in the Western Pacific? I answered a newspaper ad. (laughs) So I called New York and I said, you have any meetings in Palau? They said, nope, closest meetings are in Guam, two hours by jet. Well, this is going to be a problem. So I packed up my speaker tapes, joined Lunars International, set out for Palau. Within 48 hours of arriving there, I was given a guy's name from Annapolis, Maryland, of all places. I called him on the phone. I said, are you a friend of Bill W.'s? He said, I certainly am. I said, are there any meetings here in Palau? He says, there certainly are, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday up at the hospital. They just never registered them with New York. So that was a Monday. So I'm going to go to the meeting of the AA in Palau. I need to dress appropriately. I go through all of my stuff. you got to have AA stuff to wear. I select, I select my first things first shirt. And I go off to the meeting. There were four Americans there and three Palauans. And they warmly welcomed me to the first things first group (laughs) of Karor Palau. I need to report to you that I am the deposed Attorney General of the Republic of Palau. I was doing well until I arrested the Deputy Chief of Police, who was the hand-picked appointee of the President. And then I indicted my immediate superior, the Minister of Justice, and charged him with obstruction of justice and conspiring with the Chief of Staff to distribute drugs. As they rolled the cook pot into the square in Palau, (laughs) and began chipping carrots and potatoes into it, I knew my days were numbered. I don't know why I was sent there. I don't know why I stayed as long as I did. And I don't know why I do what I do today. Except that I do have a higher power in my life that directs and guides my life. And I learned about that power here. You remember when I began this talk, I told you I closed the door on God. I need to tell you that my father died with 15 years of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. My friend Bob, my friend Bob, when I was explaining to him about me and God, said to me, I don't understand this, Jack. I know your dad had 15 years. How old were you when you prayed that prayer that your dad would stop drinking? I said, I was 14 years old. He said, how old were you when your dad stopped drinking? I said, I was 26 years old. He said, what's your problem, Jack? My problem's timing. I want what I want when I want it. Me, the great Jack. Any any idea how long 12 years is to God? I mean, it's a nanosecond. It's a blink of an eye. It's nothing to God. To me, it's 12 years. My prayer was answered. 
I never recognized that my prayer was answered. Never. Until Bob asked me what my problem was. AA transformed my father's life. He died happy, joyous, and free. AA has transformed my life. I live today happy, joyous, and free. When my dad was in AA and had 14 years was when I was in the hospital at Johns Hopkins. He never came to see me. I was upset about that. The first day I got home from the hospital, he came to see me. That upset me. Wouldn't come to see me when I was in the hospital. Now that I'm home, comes to see me. I forgave him for that, but I was deeply hurt by it. Three years ago, our youngest son was stricken and went to the hospital and underwent emergency surgery. My wife and I went and they wheeled him out. And he was—he had hoses and whistles and bells and wires all attached all over him. He was at Seventh-day Adventist Hospital in Tacoma Park, Maryland, near the University of Maryland. We lived 70 miles away. I went home and got clothes for my wife, brought him down. She moved right into the hospital. I think I visited maybe every other day. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. And I knew why my father did not come to see me in the hospital. With 14 years of sobriety, he couldn't do it. It was too painful for him. With 17 years, I could barely do it. I just could barely do it. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the opportunity to see life as it really is, not the way I think it is. It's given me the opportunity to love life as I've never loved it before. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me an opportunity to laugh as I've never laughed before. And Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the opportunity to cry like I've never cried before. Today, life has meaning for me because I have a God in my life today who's loving and caring and gracious and He wants only the best for me. And He wants only the best for you. And if you're here tonight and you're new, please believe me when I tell you I did not come here from Hagerstown, Maryland to tell you lies. This thing works. We're alcoholic. We are not like other people. Alcoholics Anonymous works for us. For all of recorded history, there has never been a solution for us until 1935. Today, there is a solution for us. The vast majority of alcoholics never get here. You're here. Please, with all the earnestness at my command, I beg of you, stay here. Stay here. Don't leave. Don't quit. Don't give up. Together, we, we together,